Hey, deserving listeners. Today, I'm just going to be by myself answering your emails. So let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and someone who enjoys reading patron emails. This first one, anonymous patron, asked me to talk about the new documentary on Netflix called Tell Me Who I Am. I think it's on Netflix. I get so screwed up now. It's just like, was it Netflix or Amazon or Disney Plus or on demand on my cable? It's just like, geez. Anyway, Tell Me Who I Am. Excellent documentary. Highly recommend. I'm not going to spoil it because I'm guessing most of you have not seen it. It has a major twist that, if spoiled, I think would actually spoil the enjoyment of the documentary. So I'm just going to talk generally. Powerful story. I cried a number of times. It's directed well. They have this really interesting way of telling the story. Chapter one is so the story is about two twins about, you know, these twin adult men. Chapter one is like one of the twins. Chapter two is the other twin. Chapter three is two of them. And um, it's just really well done. And I think it needs to be seen for a number of different social engineering reasons. One is, is that people need to understand the effects of childhood abuse. And I think that this documentary in, you know, one way provides some, uh, uh, you know, for those who don't know, you know, these guys are, I think they're in their 50s or 50 years old or something. And uh, they're still busted up about the abuse that they went through. It's it's still affecting them, which is the norm. And this movie portrays that pretty well. It also gets into memory and amnesia in a very real way instead of the way Hollywood typically deals with it. I can spoil the main premise of the documentary because it's in the trailer. So I'll just to entice you. If you don't know, it's about these twins, and they're in England, Britain, somewhere, somewhere where they have you know non-American accents. <laughs> That's the extent of my knowledge of the location. And they have uh, their twins, and they're in the you know they're in the seventies or something. And one of the twins gets in a car accident or a motorcycle accident, really bad one, hurts his head pretty bad. And when he wakes up, he doesn't remember anything. He doesn't remember who he is. He doesn't remember where he lives. He doesn't remember his name. He doesn't remember what bicycles are or what a car does. I mean, he, he has the mind of a, like of a child and the knowledge of a, of a baby. But the one thing he remembers is his twin brother. He, he remembers that he has a twin brother and he, and he remembers his name and he doesn't remember his mother. He doesn't remember his father. He doesn't remember his home. He doesn't remember his girlfriend. He doesn't remember his best friend. He doesn't remember anything, but he remembers his twin brother. And so uh, the other twin, the twin you didn't get in the accident, is now, his, you know, and because they're very, they were very tight before the accident, he's now, uh, it's now his job to educate his twin brother on what the world is. You know, this is a bicycle. This is an apple. You know, that's your girlfriend. That's our mother. That's our father. This is our house. And the twin who went in, it was in the accident trusts the other twin a hundred percent because he doesn't know not to. And he completely depends on his brother to tell him everything because he doesn't know anything about his previous life. And so after a while, the 
twin without the accident, without the amnesia, suddenly realizes that he can tell his brother anything about his past. He can tell him anything that happened, whether right or wrong, and his twin brother will believe him. And so he's given this tremendous power of how do I tell the story of our past? Because there's some difficult parts of it. Do I tell my twin brother about the past? And it's just a fascinating story. Highly recommend it. All right, going on to another email. Patron Veronica, uh, Patron Veronica from Hong Kong writes, As a Hong Kong protester in my late 20s, I would like to email you. I have borderline personality disorder. I have no self-worth. I would like to ask you a question. How can I cope with the paranoia that I did or said something wrong with my therapist? I worry that I will cause my therapist to become frustrated or annoyed and therefore reject me. And frankly, I'm tired of my therapist telling me to just be aware of it and let it be. These feelings hurt so bad when my therapist becomes, uh, became my favorite person, she can literally make or break my day. So let me just read that again. These feelings hurt very bad. My therapist became my favorite person, and she can literally make or break my day. I once cut myself three times a day for a week because my therapist didn't reply to my messages outside of therapy. I know that boundaries are for protection, but boundaries really hurt me. I have seen her for five months, and I feel like my percentage of growth is very slow. I don't want to stop seeing her, and I don't want to change to another therapist because I really connect with her, and I know she really cares. So let me chime in here. So I don't know you. I know I haven't assessed you. Your therapist would know better, and you would know better, frankly. But in general... I receive a lot of emails like this every day, and I say that every time I respond to this email. I don't want to demean your email. It's an important email, and it bears repeating. A lot of people out there listening suffer from borderline personality, meaning that uh, people who have been relationally traumatized in a particular way and developed a particular way of coping with that is what we call borderline personality. And what that means is that early on, you discovered that the only way you could retain any kind of attachment security, any kind of shred of safety in relationships was to pay very, very close attention to what other people were doing, particularly if they were betraying you or loving you. If you know that there's a there's a very fine line between someone who is there for you and loyal and someone who is going to hurt you and is going to reject you and is going to make you feel terrible and is going to remind you that no one really, really cares. So because of that defense and because of that paranoia, because your early life actually taught you to be paranoid because you needed to be because that's the way life was, then you will seek out therapy as a way of trying to help that, and which is great. You're in the perfect place. But as that relationship intensifies, you're going to find yourself really wanting that therapist because because it's the first or one of the only really good relationships you've ever had in your life. You're going to want that therapist to become essentially your mother or a spouse, something that is very, very close, a relationship that is, you know, all encompassing. It's normal because if you've never really had that, then you need that. And you deserve that. 
but your therapist can't be that. And even though you might have asked your therapist, it sounds like you might have since you're talking about your therapist establishing boundaries with you, you you know, get pushback and you understand that intellectually. You're like, yeah, I get, you know, I get the you know, boundaries professional. I get that this person's my therapist, blah, blah, blah. But it just hurts so bad to be around this person. Okay. All of that we can understand. Another part of the borderline personality defense mechanism is to ramp up one's signaling that you're upset about being rejected and betrayed. To alert other people to uh, know that you are hurting. When you were young, in all likelihood, you realized that you were not going to be heard or seen unless you exaggerated your feelings. Only then did someone actually pay attention. And the best way to exaggerate your feelings is to actually have the feelings amplified. So there's a mechanism inside of you neurologically, it's not a choice, that will amplify your feelings because that was the only way when you were one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, seven-year-old, the only way you could be heard is if you amplify those feelings, not artificially, but actually ramp them up. Again, it's not your fault that you had to develop that mechanism. And again, it's not conscious. It is something unconscious. So as a result of that a fairly rigid defense mechanism as you feel neglected by your therapist, which is going to feel that way because you want her to be all-encompassing, which you deserve but can't have from your therapist, then neurologically your anger and your um, messaging, your signaling that you're upset will increase because you're crying out for attention. You're crying out for someone to care which, again, you deserve. That can even result in cutting, in trying to alert other people, look, I'm so distressed, I'm cutting. Now, some cutting's complicated. Non-suicidal self-injury is complicated. It, there's many causes. One is, is just self-hatred. Another is um, it actually will biologically produce endorphins, which reduce pain, which when you're experiencing emotional pain, the endorphins will actually uh, decrease that pain as if you took morphine or any kind of uh, mind-numbing drug. And uh, so there's a lot of reasons for cutting, but one of them is actually to signal to other people or even to the self that you're suffering. And so now, again, I don't know you, so there's no way for me to know any of this, really. But you are presenting as a, a very, very quintessential um, borderline reactivity to therapy. It's textbook. Now, I'm not demeaning it. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong or you shouldn't feel that way. You absolutely should feel that way. I'm glad you're feeling that way. It means therapy is working. And I know you're ther- you, you, you hate that. You're, you're angry at it because your therapist says, well, be aware of it and let it be. And that doesn't feel good because it doesn't take away the feeling. And you're still left with your feelings um, in between sessions. It doesn't solve the problem. And I understand that. And I specialize in treating borderline people. I know. I've been there with people. I've been there with people for years. I've worked with individuals with borderline for years. 
And every session they come in and say the same thing that you're saying. I can't believe you, you neglected me so much. I'm so angry at you. Um, but I want you to be close to me. I think about you all the time. Uh, I want you to be my husband. I want you to be my brother. I want you to be my dad. Why can't you spend more time with me? Why can't we hang out? Why can't we, you know, it's all of those feelings, which is normal. It is, it's good that you're having them. It, it's painful. It's the only way you can heal. There is no way to heal from your relational traumas without going through that tension. As you absorb the secure attachment you have with your therapist, you can begin to trust others and then build relationships with others so that you can actually perhaps even have a spouse or someone who is very close to you without it becoming overly complicated and difficult for the two of you to stay together. So, so that's my, you know, I've said this before and you might've even heard me say this before and maybe you didn't apply it to you, but I'm, you know, I'm applying it to you too. Again, I don't know you, so you could even be, you know, just making all this up. You could be a figment of your imagination. I don't know. So take everything I say with that, that in mind, Stay in therapy. Tell your therapist how you feel. Uh, tell your therapist that you're reaching out to podcasts because you're so upset in between session. Um, but, and there's, you know, some things your therapist can do. You know, maybe there's day treatment you can get a part of. Maybe there's a safety plan you could make more robust. Maybe there's a peer counseling situation you could get involved in. You know, talk with your therapist about that so you can have more ongoing support. But... Stay in therapy. Keep working it out. Um, work on emotional regulation. That's a big one. Work on effective ways of regulating your emotions that don't involve destructive um, patterns. And like I said, maybe you need a safety plan that, to help you stay safe. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I know that pain well. I've been with people in that pain for years. I know your pain. And there, there is no answer to it. And it isn't anyone's fault other than the people who mistreated you growing up. That's the people to blame. That's the, those are the people to be angry at, not your therapist from your description. <laughs> Maybe there's more to the story. Uh, all right. Next question. Oh, and before I move on, as I always say, you know, this podcast is not for therapy. It should not be considered therapy. It should not be considered a clinical service. You should not be depending on me for clinical services. This is an information education podcast, and uh, you should always be consulting in person with a clinician. Uh, next question from you, patron Veronica from Hong Kong. How can I cope with the helplessness induced by police states brutality? I feel like I'm really suffering from the police state brutality. I feel that I'm selfish to go to therapy and work on myself and not helping people who are suffering in my city of Hong Kong. Sometimes I don't want to help because I feel like no one has helped me in the past. Uh, just chiming in here. Hard to answer. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, how to, how to cope with helplessness induced by Hong Kong's police brutality. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's not really my area. Um, 
you know, and you say you feel selfish because you're going to therapy and not helping the, the protesters. That's, that's a question that you have to figure out for yourself. Um, it's certainly reasonable to, if you're suffering mentally, which it sounds like you are, that you need to take care of yourself before you can do anything in terms of protesting. Uh, but, and people often ask me, you know, questions like this, you know, how do I cope with X situation? And, you know, I sort of don't like the question because it implies that it's your fault and that you need to figure out a way of coping. No one would say that the, during the Holocaust in World War II in Germany and Poland, if, if the victims were to ask me through time and space, how do I cope with the brutality of the Jew, of the, of the, of Nazi Germany, of uh, people dying around me of starvation? You know, this is an extreme example. We would all expect us not to say, well, here's how you cope. I mean, certainly you could throw out some coping skills, I suppose, but most of us would be like, God damn, I don't think, how, how does anyone cope with, no one's going to be able to cope with that. It's awful. So, you know, that's an extreme situation, but it's similar. You know, if, if you're in Hong Kong and you feel like the state and the government is not safe, then it's it's rough. You know, uh, I feel similarly. Uh, there, there are so many things about my government that bother me. There are a lot of things about a lot of people's governments that bother me. And the fact that we need a, you know, a child to tell us, Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, Greta, to tell us that um, politicians need to pay attention to reality and that our livelihood and our children, our grandchildren, our grandchildren's grandchildren are going to hate us if we don't do something. And, and it isn't impossible. There are things to do. Yeah, that's very, it's very distressing to me. And how, do, how, do, how am I supposed to cope with that? And the question, you know, the question implies like uh, it's up to me. It's, it's my responsibility to cope with that difficult situation. Well, I don't think that's my fault. I don't think, I don't think it's on me to cope. I don't think it's on you to cope with the government's brutality and its um, disregard for the wishes of the people. Government is supposed to be by the people, right? According to Americans anyway. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I think it's um, part of these difficulties is just acknowledging that there's no way to cope. You know, with climate change, for me, uh, the, uh, what are we supposed to do? Our governments can, you know, we're, we're arguing currently in my country, United States, about tweets and about um, improper political phone calls, which are important, but minuscule compared to the importance of saving the earth. In a hundred years, is anyone going to care about a tweet that happened? No. They're going to be like, God damn, I wish those people would have done something earlier. We could have saved ourselves so much trouble, so much money, so much, so many lives, so many species on the planet, so many critical you know, elements and components of our ecosystem and our climate. And they just didn't, they, they were focused on what, what tweets, what, what is that? You know, oh, this thing, 
the earlier 20, early 21st century, there's a thing called Twitter and, and there's a president who, you know, said a lot of things. Why, why didn't, didn't they know? Didn't they know? So yeah, it's tough for me too. (laughs) How am I I supposed to cope with that? How do I live my life? How do I look at YouTube and Reddit and talk on this podcast about anything other than that? You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I will tell you for me, what I try to do is find balance because otherwise my life will spin out of control one way or the other. So I try to find a balance between acknowledging reality and dealing with it in whatever way I can. While at the same time, balancing that with focusing on other things like tweets from presidents, I guess. Uh, there's a balance for me that I have struck that I will feel when it becomes out of balance. So that's what I do. So maybe focusing on it when you have the energy and, and doing something about it when you have the energy. And then when you don't, you know, shift your focus to something else. The other thing is to think about what kinds of things you can do. You know, Think about smaller situations. You're at lunch with your siblings and you're 10 years old and your siblings take your cookie and you're enraged. What do you do? Well, you start screaming. You know, Johnny took my cookie. You tell on him, Johnny gives a cookie back or you get another cookie or something, you know. You see an injustice, you scream, someone comes in, and they fix the situation. Well, when we grow up, we have the same injustices that we observe, and then we scream in our way, but nothing happens. But we hope that something happens, or we expect something to happen, or we wish something would happen, but we have to understand that when it comes to national or you know large problems that are involve billions of people, our voice is just not going to be heard. And if we're going to do something, we have to organize or we have to be part of an organization. And then our voice might be heard, but might not. And part of the coping, I think, is learning that that's just the case. That I can kick and scream and make tantrums, but no one's going to care because... There's too many people, and they're they're just not listening. And even if they did care, it's not like anything's going to change because of you. And I think like Americans, they just they don't like to be a part of organizations as much as maybe other places do. You know, they they like to express themselves, but the way to get things done is through organizations. It's, you know, it's the main way. So this is just one way that I try to cope. It's like, if I'm going to do something, I, I can complain about it. I can, you know, talk about it. I can post about it. I can think about it, but that doesn't do me any good. I have to recognize that, that all that energy is, is probably for nothing. It's just, you know, all the articles I read and get upset about it's, it's like for nothing. It'd be like, you know, Johnny takes my cookie and I sit there and I go upstairs and I I start writing in my journal about it. Well, okay, 
if it makes you feel better to vent, I guess, you know, that's great. But, but you, you got to do the thing that actually creates change. And the way that you typically create change in our society is through organi- organizing. Anyway, you go on with your email. Do you think it's possible for me to join Bob's DBT course through the internet? It's too expensive for me to stay in the United States for a year just to join the DBT group, but I really cannot find any DBT courses in my city of Hong Kong. I bought the DBT workbook you talked about, but I felt it's stupid, which is feeling, which is a feeling that I can't explain. Uh, end of email. Yeah, I get a lot of e- emails like this too. I don't know what to do about this. I'm powerless over this process as well. I mean, you live in a society in which there there is an access to DBT and there might not be access to a lot of services. I don't know. So I I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do. DBT would be great for you for a number of reasons. And yeah, I'm glad that you're interested in it. Uh, Sometimes self-help can do something. You could also have your therapist look over the DBT workbook and, and, and maybe, you know, just bring it into your therapy and be like, look, I want to work on this for a while. And, you know, good therapists will will in, will invite that, even if it's not necessarily their expertise. You know, they'll definitely it's it's not foreign to them that the ideas of DBT, that you know, the basics of it. You might also be able to find a DBT therapist on BetterHelp or Talkspace. You know, the internet based therapy services. Uh, I I have a hard time believing that BetterHelp and Talkspace doesn't have at least a handful of DBT therapists that would be available to talk with you. So that's another venue. I, I don't know. You know, again, talk with your therapist about that as well. All right, let's take a break. When we get back, let's continue reading patron emails. Actually, let's not take a break. Let's actually just make the rest of the episode for patrons only. In this next part of the episode, I'm going to be taking a theoretical orientation test. It has 72 questions that try to determine the way I see the world, how I see human beings, which dictates how I actually treat people. It's a very common sort of thing for therapists to do to try to figure out their theoretical orientation, as they call it, how they're oriented theory-wise. Because, you know, you have psychoanalysis, you have solution focus, you have Adler, you have Jung, you have cognitive behavioral, you have Albert Ellis, you have Carl Rogers, you have humanistic, you have existential, you got Fritz Perls and Gestalt, and you have postmodern, you have narrative and family systems and all these different theories. And it's, it's very important for a therapist to figure out how they see the world because it'll determine how they treat their clients and how they talk about their clients. And we learn about theory all the time in graduate school and beyond. And I have spent the past 20 plus years really trying to understand all the theories because I'm a professor of theory. And it also is just fascinating to me to learn these theories. All of them are great. I consider all the theories to have value and merit. And uh, so in this next part, which is only going to be for patrons, I'm going to take this 72 question test. And I'm guessing it's going to take a long time because, you know, each question I'm going to have to think and I'll probably ponder and I'll probably like comment on what the question is trying to get at. And then I'll explain the theories and, uh, you know, of, 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 I'll explain psychoanalysis a little bit. I'll explain person. I'm guessing they'll probably get a person centered and all these kinds of things. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode is just going to end and that'll be that. But if you um, are a patron, you're going to hear the rest of it. I'm guessing it's going to take me an hour to kind of go through this. 
So if you're not a patron yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com, become a patron. You will hear the rest of this episode. You also hear um, hundreds of other episodes that are only for, you know, you know, patrons of the podcast. Also, patrons don't have to listen to ads. So do that now. Become a patron. Also know that a certain percentage of your pledge every month goes towards various charities that we support. We give out several scholarships. We've given out thousands of dollars to, uh, you know, students who are in need of money to continue their uh, work in mental health. We've given money to LGBTQ uh, charities, homeless charities, also to Pet Finder, which connects pets to human beings um, so that they don't have to be euthanized. So uh, we've given, I think, you know, almost like $15,000 or something. And so uh, that's your money that you give to us so that we can funnel it towards those various charities. So become a patron. Do so now. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone Patrons. This next email is from patron Joey. He sent in this theoretical orientation test and wondered what I thought about it. And I thought I would take it on the air and talk about maybe what they're trying to get at. So there are 72 questions. Wow. This is going to take a while. So maybe hopefully I can try to rip through this. So so that the way that this uh, – it, it's at – it's called Stories of a Great Therapist, um, Old Dominion University. You could probably do a uh, a search for that. Um, so it's assessment of your view of human nature and conceptual orientation. So it's basically trying to uh, – there's a lot of tests like this that are trying to figure out as a therapist, you know, what camp do you fall into or sets of camps do you fall into in terms of your your conceptualization of how humans work and thus – what you consider to be important in terms of how to, what to focus on and how to treat people. So, for example, I adhere to basically all schools of thought. Uh, psychodynamic, I call my primary, but it's debatable whether or not it would really would be if you watched me operate. I will use strength-based, um, you know, solution-focused, narrative. I'll use collaborative. I'll use systems. I'll use cognitive. I'll use behavioral. I'll use biological. Uh, I'll use multicultural and contextual understanding feminism. So I so let's see what this test uh, finds. Let's see if it detects that, that I am in love with all theories. <laughs> all right. So uh, it says there's a scale from zero to ten, being, zero meaning I don't believe this at all, or ten meaning I feel extremely certain that this statement is true. So this first statement is instincts like hunger, thirst, survival, sex, and aggression are very strong motivations of behavior. Instincts are very strong motivations of behavior. Uh, yeah, I will give that an eight. Um, number two, question number two. So that question is trying to get at a psychodynamic thinking, I'm guessing. Question two, psychological symptoms represent a desire to regain repressed parts of ourselves as well as parts of the self that have never been revealed to consciousness. So again, very psychoanalytic. So psychological symptoms, so like depression, anxiety, represent a desire to regain repressed parts of ourselves as well as parts of the self that have never been revealed to consciousness. It's also sort of gestalty. 
Um, I do not believe this that much. Uh, I, I don't adhere to that part of psychoanalytic thinking in that, you know, I'm much more of attachment-based, interpersonal, psychodynamic uh, camp person. But this is sort of old-school psychoanalysis. So, you know, I think it's a little bit true, so I'm going to give it a two. Number three, environmental influences on a child can lead to the development of neural, neurotic character, but through education and therapy, the person can change. So environmental influences on a child can lead to the development of neurotic character. Um, so neurotic typically means anxious, but it can also mean like problematic, depending on the context. I think they're meaning problematic character. But through education and therapy, the person can change. Um, environment, yeah, I am very much in favor of this statement, you know. Children are affected by their environment, which can lead to personality issues. And through education therapy, the person can change. What school does is that not compatible with? Number four, children learn behaviors through conditioning. Okay, so now we're going to uh, learning theory and cognitive and or behavioral theory. Sorry, children learn behaviors through conditioning. Um, you know, positive reinforcement, punishment, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. But do I believe that that's the only thing that affects them? I mean, one could argue that attachment is essentially a form of behaviorism if you look at it in a certain way. So, yeah, I'll give it a, I'll give it a seven. We are born with the potential for rational or irrational thinking. We are born with the potential. So this is cognitive theory. We are born with the potential for rational or irrational thinking. Uh, yeah. I don't know why you have to say born with. I'll give that an eight. We are born with the predisposition, with a predisposition disposition towards certain disorders that could reveal itself under stressful conditions. We're born with a predisposition towards certain disorders that could reveal itself under stressful conditions. Uh, sure. Eight. We are born with five needs. Survival, love, belonging, power, freedom, and fun. Is this Adlerian? <laughs> There's, I have a big sort of dark abyss hole when it comes to Adlerian. I, I, I've learned it several times over the years, but I haven't focused on it enough, which I know some of you out there are Adlerian folks. But anyway... We are born with five needs. You actually, but it says six. <laughs> oh, love and belonging is one need. Okay. So the the five needs are uh, survival, love, and belonging, power, freedom, and fun. Um, love and belonging, yeah, so that's attachment. Survival, power, freedom, and fun. Freedom, you know, I, I don't know, that statement is that reality therapy i'm going to give that one a one because there's more needs that i think one has we are born into a world that has no inherent meaning or purpose and we subsequently create our own meaning and purpose this is existential we are born into a world with no inherent meaning uh it's true and we subsequently create our own meaning and purpose so you know this is very existential therapy uh, oriented. I don't know. Uh, we don't, it depends on what they mean by this. Cause you know, the classic existentialists, existential therapists uh, didn't really recognize that society has a big part of that. And that attachment uh, needs have a big part of that, that 
uh, one cannot simply choose the meaning of my life does not involve attachments because it does. In the same way you can't choose to not involve food and you know water in your um, the meaning of what you need. And so, you know, I, I, it's, this is sounding a little dogmatic to me. So I'm going to, you know, yeah, there's some truth to it. I'll give it a three. An inborn actualizing tendency, an inborn actualizing tendency le- lends direction towards reaching our full potential. So it's self-actualization, humanistic, um, you know, Maslow, those folks. An inborn actualizing tendency lends direction towards reaching our full potential. So I agree with this kind of, but again, in its purest form, I don't agree with because it excludes so many other aspects of what we are, uh, you know, moving towards, so to speak. It sort of denies attachment, you know, the self-actualization. It's very individual, right? So, you know, I'll give it a three. Uh, We are born with the capacity to embrace an infinite number of personality dimensions. So this is Jungian, I believe. We are born with the capacity to embrace an infinite number of personality dimensions. No, this sounds like gobbledygook to me. Basically, certain Jungian ideas are more akin to spirituality than they are to psychology and science and to personality commentary, which is fine. You can have spirituality and belief systems that are wonderful and can be very helpful, but I don't know. They don't really lend itself to the way I like to think about humans and in my clinical work. So being born with the capacity to embrace an infinite number of personality dimensions. I mean, and it's, but this one's hard to, hard to imagine what they're meaning. I mean, certainly we're all born with uh, the capacity to develop a lot of different kinds of personalities for sure. So, I don't know. I'll give that one a two. Uh, no, I'll give that a zero. That, just, that's, that one just feels funny. Uh, reality is created through interactions or discussions within one's social circle. This is either narrative or systems or reality therapy. Reality or cognitive. Reality is created through interactions or discussions within one's social circle. It also could be hermeneutic. Reality is is created through interactions and or social constructionism. Yeah, I'm big believer in that idea. Reality is created through interactions and discussions. Yeah, so it sounds more like social construction. So nine. Change can occur in fewer than six sessions. Extended therapy is often detrimental. Zero. So that is brief therapy. Um, deciding. How to satisfy instincts occurs mostly unconsciously. So psychoanalytic. Deciding how to satisfy instincts occurs mostly unconsciously. Deciding how to satisfy mostly unconsciously. Yeah, okay. I mean, sure, I'll give it a five. Revealing unconscious material to consciousness allows an integrated whole person. Revealing unconscious material to consciousness Allows for an integrated whole person. Again, psychoanalytic. Uh, No, there's no way to reveal everything unconscious, and I'm not super big on focusing on that. Certainly, there. I mean, in the classical psychoanalytic sense. I mean, the classic psychoanalytic sense, they were just really trying 
even if the client didn't care to, really trying to get the client to reveal their inner aggression, their inner hatred of their parents, their inner you know, sexual perversions towards other people. And when you actually bring those to the surface and make them conscious, you, you don't act out. You don't have defenses to keep those things repressed and split off from your personality. Uh, I don't adhere to that notion at all. I'm going to give that a zero. We are all striving. I mean, it certainly can happen for some individuals, but it certainly isn't like the primary focus of our dysfunctions. We are all striving for perfection in our effort to be whole and complete. We all are striving for perfection in our effort to be whole and complete. Could be Jungian, could be Gestalt, can't really tell. We're all striving for perfection perfection in our effort to be whole and complete. No, zero. Past and present conditioning makes us who we are. So learning theory, um, behaviorism. Past and present conditioning makes us who we are. So it's a very definitive statement. There's nothing other than that. And on a pretty, if you, if you extend conditioning out and learning theory out to attachment theory, which it absolutely can, and even to like systems theory and even to interpersonal theory, uh, then absolutely, but they typically don't. So uh, the statement is, I think, partially true. And so I'll give it a, Four, irrational thinking leads to emotional distress. Irrational thinking, so this is cognitive therapy. Irrational thinking leads to emotional distress. Yeah. Dysfunctional behaviors and criticism of self and others. Yeah, absolutely. Irrational thinking like I'm a piece of shit. You know, um, that leads to emotional distress. Dysfunctional behaviors and criticism of self and others. Absolutely. By understanding one's cognitive processes, thinking... One can manage and change the way one lives. So again, cognitive therapy. By understanding one's thinking, one can manage and change the way one lives. Uh, Yeah. So it all comes down to like how much. Yes, this statement is true. Is it the only way to frame this? No. So I'll give it a seven. We all have a quality world containing mental pictures of people, things, and beliefs, most importantly, in meeting our unique needs. We all have a quality world. A quality world? What does that even mean? We all have a quality world containing mental pictures. Is this like um, imago therapy? We we have mental pictures of people, things. Is this, is this, uh, what is this? Is this, again, social constructionism again? We have mental pictures of people, things, and beliefs, most important in meeting our unique needs. I don't know what that means, so I'm going to give it a three. <laughs> we all struggle with the, I mean, I, I guess I basically understand what it means, but I don't know what they mean behind the words. We all struggle with the basic questions of what it is to be human. We all struggle, so this is existential. We all struggle with the basic questions of what it is to be human. Yeah, but, you know, it's not the central nature of our being, so I will give it a six. All right, we are about a third of the way through. (laughs) I hope this is entertaining for you. Children continually assess whether interactions are positive or negative to the actualizing process or way of living in the world. Hmm. I mean, use the words actualizing. So it looks humanistic, but I'm not quite sure. Children continually assess whether interactions are positive or negative to their actualizing process. 
um, they continually assess, like consciously, unconscious. I don't know. This one, ish. Give it a two. The mind, body, and soul operate in unison. They cannot be separated. The mind, body, and soul operate in unison. I don't know what theory this is. I mean, I guess Jungians would kind of talk this way. Mind, body, and soul. I mean, I guess a lot of people talk this way. They cannot be separated. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Five. Values held by those in power are disseminated through language and become the norms to which we compare ourselves. This is social construction. Values held by those in power are disseminated through language. When I first learned about social constructionism, this idea kind of was confusing and unconvincing until it became convincing. And then I very much believe it. I haven't, I should do a deep dive on social constructionism at some point. It's very, very compelling, very helpful. But essentially the idea is that linguistically through our language, we disseminate ideas, which everyone understands, but that uh, it actually, you know, whenever I talk about propaganda, this is what I'm talking about. It's like we believe them through the rhetoric that people in power uh, give to us. You know, those who have the money, you know, uh, the oil companies have power. The government has power. Certain politicians have power. And they will disseminate those values through their language by talking, writing. And those things will become the norms uh, in our society upon which we will compare ourselves to. And different societies have different norms. Why? Because they have different ideas, because the people in power have different ideas of what needs to be the norm. Uh, And we're all a part of that propaganda machine. We both perpetuate it and absorb it and are victims of it and perpetrators of it. And when you see it, then it's very, very helpful. It's sort of a, um, I don't know, Heidegger and all those kinds of people talked about it as well. So I'm going to give this a 10. Individuals can find exceptions to their problems and build on those exceptions to find new ways of living in the world. This is solution focus, I think. Individuals can find exceptions to their problems and build on those exceptions to find new ways of living in the world. Definitely solution focused. Therapy, people can find exceptions. I don't like the way they're, you know, writing these questions because if you didn't understand what solution focused therapy is, you'd be like, huh, what are you talking about? So individuals can find exceptions to their problems and build Yeah, eight, seven. Our personality is framed at a very young age and is quite difficult to change. So this is psychoanalytic, psychodynamic. Yes, depending on what we're talking about. But yeah, I'm pretty, I mean, difficult to change, but changeable. I'll give that a seven. Primordial images that we all have interact with, primordial images that we all have Interact with repressed material to create psychological complexes. Mother complex, Peter Pan complex. So this is psychoanalytic and or Jungian, I believe. So they interact with repressed material to create psychological complexes. Not in the way that they're talking about it. I mean, I, I use these words and these concepts in a way that fits with my way of seeing things. A lot of people use these terms in a way that doesn't really resonate with me. I'll give it a one. 
Children's experiences by the age of five and memories of those experiences are critical factors in personality development. Absolutely. Nine. Behaviors are generally conditioned and learned in very complex and subtle ways. So this is behaviorism. Behaviors are generally conditioned and learned in very complex and subtle ways. Uh, Yeah, I'll give that an eight in the way they're talking about it. Although learning and biological factors influence the development of rational or irrational thinking, it is the individual who sustains his or her type of thinking. So it's very cognitive minded. So although learning and biological factors influence your thinking, it is up to the individual to sustain that type of thinking. Now, I'm going to give that a three because, uh, again, it's hard to know, you know what people are referring to when they say the statement. Are they how much blame are they putting on the person and how much control does one have over those kinds of thoughts? Because I would say, I'm going to give that one a two core beliefs, underlying beliefs that map our world. So this is cognitive schema therapy kind of thing. Core beliefs are the basis for a person's feelings, behaviors, and psychological responses. Uh, core beliefs. How much do I believe in core beliefs being the basis for our feelings, behaviors? I will give that a four because our beliefs are certainly a part of it, but we, you know, I don't have a core belief. People don't have core beliefs around attach, needing attachment, for example. You know, they, they're born with that. It's part of our being so it's not a belief system it's a just a human need so i'll give that a four we can only choose our actions and thoughts our feelings and our physiology result from those choices so this is cbt the only we can only choose our actions and thoughts our feelings and our physiology result from these choices so when you make so that's also cognitive therapy so in other words, we choose, We can choose our what to do, we can choose our behavior, and we can choose how we think about something. We can choose the way we see something, you know. Uh, someone didn't give me a birthday present. Okay, that's an event. I can choose to either see that as a betrayal, or I can see it as they just forgot, or I could see it as they just don't give gifts, or I didn't tell them that I wanted a gift. Or, you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about something, and then that dictates our feelings and our physiology, as a result of the choice upon making that thought choice. Um, I mean, true under a lot of circumstances, but definitely not all. I'm going to give that a four. You know, because again, bringing to attachment, um, I can't choose to be hurt when someone rejects me. You know, when someone, when someone dumps me, it's not my choice to be hurt by that. It's not my choice to look at that situation and say, I'm going to choose to see that negatively and then therefore feel terrible about it. I can't, there's no way to choose to look at that positively. You know, you can try, but it, you know, being rejected, you know, it's just, it's just an innate thing to our attachment. Um, we are born alone. We will die alone. And except for periodic moments when we encounter another person deeply, we live alone. So this is existential therapy. We are born alone, we die alone, and except for periodic moments where we, um, you know, encounter another person, yeah, I'll give that a three. It's not untrue, but it's emphasizing things a little bit too much. The self has a need to be regarded positively by significant others. Yes, 10. 
From birth, the individual is in a constant state of self-regulation through a process of need identification and need fulfillment. Yeah. So from birth, we are in a constant state of self-regulation through a process of need identification and need fulfillment. So we're in a constant state of what do I need and how can I fulfill it from birth? Yeah, I don't, I'll give that an eight. I'm not sure what theory that is though. Psychopathology is a social construction. There is no separate reality that supports its existence. Okay, so now they're just putting social constructionism in the title. It's sort of interesting because I don't think any of these questions are getting at systems theory. And none of them are getting at sort of biological theories as well. And none of them are getting at narrative. And none of these are getting at really interpersonal and sort of aspects of psychodynamic therapy or object relations, uh, defense mechanisms. And this is typical, actually. Whenever I take these uh, theoretical orientation tests, I will often find it's like, oh, you're neglecting entire areas of our field. Emotion focused is not being discussed here. So psychopathology is a social construction. There is no separate reality that supports its existence. No, I don't, I'm not a purist when it comes to this sort of thing. There absolutely is a thing called schizophrenia. There absolutely is a thing called major depression. I don't, I, now, we will socially construct an idea of what it is, and that affects people as they have those conditions. But uh, like one example you could say is that uh, that you, through observation, and the best way to look at social construction components is and influences is to look at different things in different societies. So when you look at psychosis and schizophrenia, in our society, in Western society, you will see a lot of people with very persecutory, very self-hatred voices. You know, if you've ever seen someone on the street screaming at themselves, they're like, God damn it, you fucking asshole, and they just seem to be yelling at no one. A lot of times these people are suffering from, you know, voices and they're they're yelling at their voices because their voices are really quite mean and the observation of other societies we find that there's a much lower rate of that and a much higher rate of voices that are neutral or even nice to the person so why would that be it's not biology doesn't appear to be anyway it appears to be the way in which we socially construct psychosis and for those people who live in Western society, maybe they're stigmatized more, stigmatized a different way or something, which causes them to have this different uh, experience of the hallucinations. So the psychopathology thing, that's a real thing, can be affected by social construction. And certainly the way we look at it, you know, one society looks at schizophrenia as a biological condition. Another society looks at it as a spiritual problem. Another society looks at, at it as a a problem with self-control or something. So we certainly construct ideas around that and, you know, power systems will uh, affect the way society sees things, see things through language. Uh, but um, that doesn't mean that, so it's affected by social construction, but it's, it's not a product of social construction. So I'm going to give this one a one. Although many therapies describe structures that affect functioning, like id, ego, self-actualizing tendency, there is no objective reality proving their existence. So this is, 
um, cultural relativism, social construction, maybe feminism. So although many therapies describe structures that affect function, functioning, there's no objective reality proving their existence. Um, this is also kind of uh, phenomenological, I suppose. Yeah, I'm a big, big believer in this system. I'll give it a nine. The development of defense mechanisms, repression, denial, projection, are ways of managing instincts. Yeah, so this is sort of classic ego, or not ego, but um, yeah, ego, ego psychology. <laughs> I'm forgetting my terms. No, ego is cohut, right? Or no, is that self psychology? Uh, golly, it's been so long since I've had to categorize these things and, and study them. Anyway, back in the old days when they really emphasized uh, defense mechanisms and a and a Freud was a big component of or proponent of these ideas. And I will say that, yeah, I'm a big believer in defense mechanisms. Seven. Archetypes. Okay, here we are with Young. Archetypes are or inherited unconscious primordial images provide the psyche with its tendency to perceive the world in certain ways that we identify as human. Archetypes provide the psyche with its tendency to perceive the world in certain ways that we identify as human. No, I'm not a big archetype person. I, it, that language has never really resonated with me. I get why it resonates with others, so I'm going to give this one a zero. As children, how we learn to cope with inevitable feelings of inferiority affects our personality development. Okay, this is definitely Adlerian. As children, how we learn to cope with inevitable feelings of inferiority affects our personality development. I've never been a big fan of the inferiority emphasis that Adler put on things. Certainly, our uh, experience of inferiority uh, plays a large role in our personality development, but not not a central role. So I'm going to give this one a two. Conditioning, positive reinforcement punishment, can lead to a multitude of personality characteristics. So again, you know, I I always like to expand behaviorism beyond its typical discussions, you know, of conditioning people to, for example, do their homework or conditioning people to respond in nice ways to other people or to be polite Certainly, one can condition this into people and can be conditioned by one's environment. But I extend that behaviorism, you know, broader to say, you know, like when I was talking about the borderline earlier, one can be conditioned to ramp up one's emotions because it is the only way to get attention. You know, your the goal is to get attention. That's the reward. And you realize when you when you amplify your emotions unconsciously, again, out of your control, you get the reward of the affection from the other person. So that's that's a behaviorism construct to me, but often conditioning behaviorists don't talk about those part things because, one, you can't really observe it as a behavior. Behaviorists are notorious for wanting to be able to observe and code an actual thing you can see. So, you know, so do, you know, is it true that conditioning can lead to a multitude of personality characteristics? Yeah, sure. Five. When our cognitive processes result in irrational thinking, we will tend to have self-defeating emotions and exhibit dysfunctional behaviors. So it's this cognitive therapy. So when we engage in irrational thinking, we will have self-defeating emotions 
and exhibit dysfunctional behaviors. Yeah, irrational thinking, but it depends on what we're irrational about. You can be irrational about things and have things actually go well for you. Like someone could irrationally believe that climate change is going to be fine and that we're in no trouble. And, you know, that's going to lead to uh, you being pretty positive about things and having positive emotions. So I think it depends on what we mean by self-defeating. But so I'm going to give this one a three. Genetics, biological factors, and experiences combine to produce specific core beliefs that affect how we behave and feel. Okay, so this is schema therapy and sort of broader cognitive therapy. So we have our genetics, we have biological factors and experiences that combine to to produce our core beliefs. So, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a seven. I said that, yeah, like... uh, Counting crows. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that guy? Uh, My cat is going to want out, so I better let her out. All right. Next question. At any point in one's life, a person can evaluate his or her behaviors, thoughts, feelings, and physiology and make new choices that better meet his or her needs. At any point in a person's life, they can evaluate their needs uh, or their feelings, thoughts, physiology, and make new choices that better meet their needs. So this is sounding existential. It's also sounding CBT, uh, humanistic. It's like, you know, you can, you can think about things and change right away. You don't need to process the past. You, you just change. Uh, or is it brief therapy? I'm not, uh, you know, this, this is underlying a lot of different theories. But do I believe that at any point, people could just, you know, look at, evaluate their life and make choices that better meet their needs. I do believe that. I do believe that, but it's not central, so I'll give it a seven. seven. Meaningfulness, as well as a limited sense of freedom, comes through consciousness and the choices we make. Again, humanistic, existential Meaningfulness, as well as a limited sense of freedom, comes through consciousness and the choices we make, Uh, sort of, because our freedom has a lot to do with our environment, and so does meaningfulness, so I'll give it a six. Because they want to be loved, children will often act in a way that significant others want them to act instead of acting in a manner that is real or congruent with themselves. So this sounds like Maslow and and Rogers and humanistic people. So because children want to be loved, they will act in a different way than what is really them or congruent with themselves. Yeah. Eight. Parental dictates, social mores, and peer norms can prevent a person from attaining satisfaction of a need. This unsatisfied need can affect us in ways in which we are unaware so parents, society, and peers can prevent us from attaining a satisfaction of a need, and that that unsatisfied need can affect us in ways in which we are unaware. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what you're getting at, because it's so broad, but I'll give that a nine. Um, constant disclosure and interpretation and interaction, sorry. Constant disclosure and interactions with others within one's social milieu leads to the development of a sense of self. Constant discourse 
and interactions with others within one's social situation leads to the development of a sense of self, constant disclosure and interactions with others. Constant leads to a sense of self Uh, for, because I think there's other ways to develop a sense of self. I mean, someone attunes to your thoughts and feelings and you develop a self through that as well. Language endemic in culture, society, and the individual social sphere determines the nature of reality. So social constructionism again. So language determines our nature, the nature of reality. Yeah, very much so um, in the way that I understand what they're getting at. So I'm going to give it an eight because I think there's other factors in reality, meaning that they are predetermined, deterministic parts of our evolution Because we spend the majority of our time unconsciously struggling to satisfy our unmet needs, happiness is an elusive feeling experienced infrequently. Because we spend a majority of our time unconsciously struggling to satisfy our unmet needs, so is this psychoanalytic, happiness is an elusive feeling experienced infrequently. No, I'll give that a one. I think happiness is attainable and experienced by many people, including, dare I say, me. We are born with the mental functions of sensation, intuition, and thinking feeling, which affect our perceptions. This is young. Their relative strengths are affected by how we were raised. I'm not a big sense into, I I don't, those dimensions don't resonate with me. Whenever I take the Myers-Briggs, those those dimensions are always highly, basically the only dimension on the Myers-Briggs that really resonates with me is the extroversion introvert. All the other ones, I'm like, huh? I don't understand how these are different, you know? Like, when we look at the Myers-Briggs and you look at the extroversion-introversion spectrum, it makes sense, you know? I'm, for example, me. I am kind of in the middle of extrovert and introvert and maybe a little bit more extroverted in that, like, I like to, you know, organize parties. I like to go to parties. I'm comfortable in parties, I'm comfortable at social events. My family, I come from a family of six, you know, growing up, I had three siblings. There were always friends over. I always had big groups of friends. I paid, I played team sports. I was part of a fraternity. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy groups. I, for this podcast, I like it to, ha- I like to have people on the podcast. I, I, f- I don't like to be alone when I do the podcast usually. Um, you know, some of you were aware of this way back in the day, but uh, I actually didn't do a solo episode until years into doing this podcast because I just never wanted to do the podcast on my own. Now it just sounds sort of silly. It's like, well, why wouldn't you do some episodes on your own? <laughs> but I remember the very first episode I did on my own was an episode on psychodynamic therapy. Some of you have listened to it. I've done it reruns. It's a psychodynamic conceptualization of Gloria from the tapes with... Um, you know, uh, with Fritz Perls and Rogers and Ellis. And at the end of the episode, I was like, so this is just me doing an episode of my own. And I, I kind of feel like it's sort of self-indulgent. Do you like it? Anyway, so I'm very extroverted, but I'm also extremely introverted. Like today I woke up, I exercised by myself while well, I went with the dog, I ran or jogged around with the dog. Um, you know, I'd have interactions with my wife. We were both at home today. And so there were, you know, some brief interactions. I, you know, saw other family members briefly. 
I, um, but then most of the time I just been spending working on this podcast by myself. I, I think I played a video game for a little bit of time, took a nap by myself, <laughs> had some more, you know, interactions with my wife, watched a TV show with my wife. We watched the great British baking show thing on Netflix, which I find delightful in a strange way. When I heard that TV show, you know, cause there's been a lot of hype around that show recently. And I was, I was like, ah, I don't like cooking shows and I don't like reality shows, but there's just something about that show. It's just so easy to watch. And it's such fast paced, you know, a lot of those reality shows, they, they're paced so slow. It's just like, get to the point. Um, and they don't do any of those cheesy things. So, um, I, you know, anyway, but anyway, so most of the day I spent by myself and I'm perfectly happy doing that. I, 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 I need that time to myself. So it makes sense that I'm in between extroversion and introversion. Uh, but the other ones, like I, whenever people explain it to me, I'm like, huh? Like, I feel like I'm both, I, I'm both a, a sensory person and an intuition person. I'm, I'm a both, I'm both of a thinking person and a feeling person. And I know that, you know, people who adhere to the Myers-Briggs and Jungian people will be like, well, you know, there's a dominant or maybe you're in the middle or something. And I'm like, I don't know. These dimensions just don't really make sense to me. And I'm glad they make sense to you, but they don't make sense to me in the same way that maybe extroversion and introversion doesn't make sense to you. Maybe you're just like, yeah, that dimension doesn't because personality is weird. And any personality expert knows that, that, uh, you cannot measure personality very easily. <laughs> so anyway, getting back to this question, do I agree with it? We are born with, you know, sensei, intuition, thinking, feeling. No, I don't believe that at all. I'm going to give that a zero. At an early age, we develop a private logic that moves us towards dysfunctional behaviors or towards wholeness. At an early age, we develop a private logic that moves us towards dysfunctional behaviors or towards wholeness depends on what we mean by private logic uh to some extent yes but i don't like that phrase to private logic so i'll give it a two because you can say it's core beliefs or something by carefully analyzing how behaviors are conditioned one can understand why an individual exhibits his or her current behavioral repertoire so that's behaviorism uh no i mean kind of three it is not events that cause negative emotions, but the belief about the events. So very cognitive. So I hope people understand, you know, whenever a lot of everyone always lumps or not everyone, but very, very my field lumps, you know, they call it CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. I hope that I'm demonstrating how different cognitive therapy is from behavioral therapy. When, you know, I've been going over behaviorism and behaviorism is different from behavioral therapy to some extent, but you know, I've been talking about behaviorism so far, and I hope if you don't understand behaviorism, I hope you kind of got a little bit of the gist of it, I hope, as I've been rambling about in my reactions to these questions. You know, learning, conditioning, um, training, modeling, uh, shaping behavior. But when you are training, I'm trying to train my dog right now to sit, and I use the food and the clicker and the positive reinforcement, you know, through, uh, through being, you know, saying good dog and that kind of thing. That's all shaping. It's conditioning. It's, it's, um, behaviorism and it works and it's true. And humans do this too, with a variety of, of different behaviors. One could say all, if we include attachment theory and defense mechanisms, you know, we essentially 
are conditioned to have certain defense mechanisms is the way that I would phrase it. Some people, a lot of people wouldn't. But anyway, so I've been talking about behaviorism and I've been talking about cognitivism, this idea of, you know, it's not the events that cause negative emotions. When, you know, when someone breaks up with you, that's not the cause of the negative emotion. It's the belief you have about being broken up with. If you choose to believe or your core beliefs are structured as such to perceive the breakup as a bad thing, then you're going to have a negative emotion about it. But if you have a belief about the breakup that it's fine and that it's a liberating thing, then you'll have a positive emotion about it. So that's very different from behaviorism and conditioning, right? Now you can be conditioned to have certain kind of core beliefs, but a lot of people, they just lump cognitive behavioral therapy together. It's, it's an integration and it's fine, uh, and I support it, <laughs> but I feel like it. when you combine the two, you lose the power of both in a lot of ways. So anyway, so it's not the events that cause negative emotions, but the belief about the events, no. I mean, I, again, I'm a big proponent of irrational beliefs and cognitive therapy, but I do not believe in the purism, the purest, the purest standpoint, purest position of cognitive therapy that your beliefs, your interpretation of the event is absolutely the cause of how you feel. That's ridiculous. Um, we don't have a lot of control over that. Uh, now, some cognitivists will say, well, it's not about control over the belief. It's just like the way you believe about something. But I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a cop out. So I'm going to give that a zero. All right. 54 question. Uh, and we have what? Tw- about 18 left. We all have automatic thoughts that result in a set of behaviors, feelings, and physiological responses. Now, so now this cognitive therapy or this cognitive theory idea, I can get behind, you know? Yeah. We all have automatic thoughts about lots of things. When I, when, when, when I see Trump, I have a bunch of automatic thoughts. When someone else sees Trump, they have a different set of automatic thoughts. And so when I, uh, you know, see Trump, then I'm going to feel differently about him. I'm going to think differently about him. I'm going to have a different physiological reaction to him. So absolutely, I'm big time, so I'll give that a 10. When language shows caring and the taking of responsibility, good choices are made. When language is blaming, critical, and judgmental, poor choices are made. Eh, yeah, yeah, basically, but not really too we sometimes avoid living authentically and experiencing life fully because we are afraid to look squarely at who we are making meaning in our lives. So this is humanistic. We sometimes avoid living authentically and experience, experiencing life fully because we are afraid to look squarely at how we are making meaning in our lives. Yeah. 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 I mean, sure. That's a big one to me. You know, we like... Um. Now, what gets in the way of that, right? A lot of you know, your lack of sense of self can get in the way. A lot of things can get in the way of you knowing who you are and how to live, quote unquote, authentically. You know, uh, I've always sort of disliked that term. Um, you know, I I strive to live authentically. Well, what does that exactly mean? Is that, um, you know, with integrity, trying to be true to yourself? Okay, I can get with that. But I think a lot of times when in, when humanistic people are talking about authentic, they're talking about um, being in line with your nature, with your true nature. Okay, well, what is our true nature? You know, what what is that? And were we born with it? Do we decide it? Um, what is authentic, so to speak? You know, and and I don't think they have a lot of 
convincing uh, language around that. So we sometimes avoid living authentically and experiencing life fully because we are afraid to look squarely at how we are making meaning in our lives. So this is existential. So, you know, existentialists are just like, you know, you need to, you need to look at how you're, how you're choosing to make meaning of your life, you know? So I'm pretty big on that, but I don't agree with the full statement. So I'm going to give it a four. Anxiety and related symptoms can be conceptualized as a signal to the individual that he or she is acting in a non-genuine way and not living fully. So this is again, humanistic, uh, no zero anxiety is so much more than that. It's trauma related, for example, breaking free from defenses allows one to fully experience the presence and the present and live a more sane life. Breaking free from defenses allows one to fully experience their life. Uh, yeah. So it's a psychodynamic idea, breaking free of our defenses. Absolutely. 10. Reality is a social construction and each person's reality is organized and maintained through his or her narrative and discourse with others. So again, right down the middle, social constructionism. Reality is a social construction and each person's reality is organized and maintained through their narrative discourse with others. Uh, yeah, but not entirely because there are other forces at play. It's a big part of it, especially when we expand it. I'll give it an eight. Pathology in all practical purposes does not exist and is not inherently found within the person. No, zero. Early child rearing practices are largely responsible for our personality development. Early child rearing practices are largely responsible for our personality development. Absolutely nine. We are born with a tendency to be either extroverted or introverted. Okay, so here's the part of Jungian thought that I can uh, agree with. But, you know, are we born with that tendency? Certainly, when you look at young children, you can see a tendency towards that and that, you know, grows over time. So, yeah, but there's certainly a lot of environmental um, effects and also, I don't know, just life. You know, we just like there. there's points in my life when I've been a lot more extroverted and points in my life when I've been a lot more introverted just because of the way my life was situated, the way I wanted my life to be. So, you know, is it a tendency or just a lifestyle or, you know, uh, I don't think it gets at that that well. So I'm going to give this one a three. Child experiences and the memories of them impact each of our unique abilities and characteristics integral to the development of our character or personality. So childhood experiences are integral to our personality. Yeah, absolutely. Ten. By identifying what behaviors have been conditioned, one can eliminate undesirable behaviors and set goals to acquire more functional ways of acting. By identifying what behaviors have been conditioned, so this is conditioning, learning, and uh, behaviorism, one, by identifying what behaviors have been conditioned, one can eliminate undesirable behaviors and set goals to acquire. So this is, you know, behaviorism right down the middle. Yeah, you know, we can change us through conditioning for sure, but some things are really hard to condition. So I'm going to give this one a six. Um, I wonder how many of you are even following this conversation. I wonder, you know, it makes me wonder. It's like, do you need to know more about theory before you can even understand what I'm talking about? The other thing I'm thinking about is how many of you clinicians out there who actually do have 
um, an understanding of a theoretical orientation are like, oh my God, this is why I hate Kirk is because, you know, he, I love Jung and he, he does, he clearly is not a Jung person. <laughs> so this is why Kirk always drives me crazy. Um, all right. Number 65, a depth, the depth and length of time that one experiences a self-defeating emotion is related to one's belief about an event. So related to one's, uh, uh, you know, the belief. So again, this is, so, in, you know, in other words, the intensity of your reaction to something is related to your beliefs about the event, not the, the event directly. Yeah, I'll give it a five. I bet you, so if I'm going to predict, I'm almost at the end, I'm going to predict that I'm pretty low in the young scale and the Adler scale, maybe, maybe a little higher in the Adler scale. I'm going to say I'm going to be pretty high in the psychodynamic and the social construction and the behaviors. And I'm, and I'm going to say that I'm going to, co- you know, the purest on the cognitive uh, beliefs, I'm going to be in the middle. Uh, humanistic, I'm going to say I'm going to be at it like a 6 out of 10, I'm guessing. I don't know what other theories they're trying to get at. Oh, solution-focused. There's only one question here that was really directly solution-focused. Maybe they have like a collaborative um, category that I'm going to say. Maybe that's so, maybe social constructionism is part of that solution focus because sometimes those get combined. Um, the narrative, you know, postmodern, they call it a lot of times. So I bet you that's actually what they're getting at is there's a lot of questions about solution. There's one question about solution-focused. And several questions about social constructionism, and I bet you there's, they're going to lump all that into postmodern, is my guess. It's not usually the way I like to lump things together, but anyway. Number 66. Automatic thoughts reinforce core beliefs we have about the world. Yeah, um, but not entirely. So six. Needs can only be satisfied in the present. So focusing on how past needs were not met is useless. So this is a humanistic notion. It's also a postmodern notion. In other words, it's like, yeah, don't think about, you know, needs that were not met in the past. That does you no good. You know, there's no point. And, you know, when if you were abused at the age of five, it doesn't matter. You know, you need to focus on what you're going to do now. You know, be in the moment, be in the now. Certainly, there's a lot of wisdom that wisdom to that, a lot of helpfulness to that. But to do that strictly, I don't think is very helpful because we can go back. and I think we need to go back. So I'm going to give that a three. People can gain a personally meaningful and authentic existence by making new choices that involve facing life struggles honestly and directly. I believe this is existential. People can gain a personally meaningful and authentic existence by making new choices that involve facing life struggles honestly and directly. Yeah, very existential. Uh, yeah, sure. But, you know, not it's not a huge deal, I think. So four. Being around people who are real, empathic, and show positive regard results in an individual becoming more real. So this is very phenomenological and Rogerian. So being around people who are real, empathic, authentic, and show positive regard results in the individual becoming more real. You know, what do we mean by real? <laughs> How does someone become more real? Like, what's the opposite of real? Unreal? Um, I mean, I know what they're getting at. I'm a big fan of Rogers for sure. I'll give this a seven. The ultimate way of living involves allowing oneself access to all of what is available to one's experience. Essentially now equals awareness equals reality. So again, this is humanistic. I believe the ultimate way of living involves allowing oneself to access 
allow, allowing oneself access to all of what is available to one's experience right now. Living in the now. You got to know the now. This is a gestalty. Um, yeah. Four. Problems, problems individuals have are a function of their problem-saturated stories or narratives. Ooh, this is very postmodern, very narrative therapy. However, new preferred stories can be generated. So this is very narrative therapy. This is in the postmodern category, I, th- I think, what they're getting at. Um, so in other words, it's like if you look back at your previous divorce and you say, oh, it's all my spouse's fault and, um, you know, she did this and she was that and, um, you know, that's why my life sucks right now because she ruined me and I'm ruined because that's just how the world works. Well, you know, that narrative that you've decided upon, which feels accurate to you, is actually not necessarily accurate because there's a lot of different potential narratives one can develop. And by choosing that narrative, then it keeps you locked in a certain dysfunction that maybe you would like to change. You know, maybe you want to meet someone and you're wondering why you can't meet anybody. But um, when someone actually um, talks to you, they're like, oh, well, I know what a factor is in you not being able to meet anybody. It's because you don't trust people naturally because you have a narrative that is not very kind to your previous spouse. So by changing your narrative about your previous spouse, you'll begin to trust people more and then thus you'll be able to have the relationships that you want to have. So it's very narrative therapy and I'm a big fan of it. I don't think it's, you know, the entirety of human existence. So I'm going to give it a six. Problems are the result of language passed down by families, culture, and society and dialogues between people. So social constructionism. Problems are the result of language being passed down and dialogues. Yeah, it depends on what we have a problem. So six. Ooh, I got my results. Okay. So I am on the, so on the psychodynamic. So they, they have four categories. They have, they have, psychodynamic so i knew that they were getting at that but they they also break that out into psychoanalysis jungian analytical and individual psychology which is adler right so on the and then the next category is the cognitive behavioral score which they've lumped those together but they break that out into behavioral rebt or rational motive behavioral therapy cognitive behavioral and reality therapy i knew reality was in there somewhere so they don't have cognitive therapy itself that's bizarre to me (laughs) maybe a lot of people are you know considering cognitive therapy to be cognitive behavioral or maybe rebt maybe a lot of those questions i was interpreting as cognitive were actually getting at rebt which is very cognitive The, the third category so we had psychodynamic you have cbt and then you have existential humanist which i knew they were getting at and they broke break those out into existential person-centered and gestalt which i was identifying and then the fourth category they have postmodern, and they break it out between narrative and solution focus they don't have they don't have social constructionism because that's not typically identified as a theory in my field but it informs narrative and solution focused um okay so my scores are all around 50%. <laughs> Actually, um, okay, so if I went for the 
so for my my overall psychodynamic score is forty two percent, but a lot of that is explained, but it's pulled down by the fact that my Jungian score is only ten percent, whereas my psychoanalysis score is sixty one. So my highest scores are my highest score was cognitive behavioral. Get that one right again because a lot of the cognitive questions and the behavioral questions I can agree with. It's just a matter of you know, what we mean by that and how much emphasis we put on it. So, so that makes sense. Cause a lot of the, again, a lot of reality therapy, I only got 33%. So how do I want to talk about this without confusing you all? Um, okay. So the top one I had 70% cognitive behavioral. So I definitely agreed with a lot, but not all. And then if I look at psychoanalysis, I'm 61%. Again, because, you know, there's certain aspects of psychoanalysis I'm definitely down with, but not entirely. And there's some that I'm definitely not down with. Oh, no, the second, my second place one, sorry, is narrative. That's probably where a lot of those social constructionism questions we're getting at. There was only one question that was like quintessential narrative that I heard. A lot of the social construction questions were getting at that narrative part. And again, I'm a big social constructionist, so I'm a, I guess I'm a big narrative uh, believer as well. I, and I am, but I, uh, whenever I learn that theory, I'm, I, I'm never like, yeah, I, I want to do that. I mean, I definitely utilize aspects of it. So, so number one, cognitive behavioral. Number two, narrative. Number three is psychoanalysis. Number four is gestalt, which makes sense. There's certainly a lot of gestalt and, you know, existential humanistic things that I'm uh, a proponent of. Next is individual psychology, Adler. Yeah, I mean, when I've been exposed to Adler, I can get behind the inferiority complex stuff is a, and the sibling order stuff definitely is silly. But there's a lot of groundbreaking stuff that Adler got into very early. He was almost kind of like a proto-family therapist, uh, systems thinker. And then behaviorism, 55%, which seems accurate to me. And then from there, we got person-centered at 50%. I'm surprised I'm only 50%. I'm guessing because of the self-actualization questions that I, I was thinking more of it just being a general humanistic thing. Um, so that's interesting. Then down from there at 43%, I have existential. Um, you know, those are the questions of like, are you, um, you know, your is your, the meaning of your life, is it decided by you? I do believe in a lot of that, but a lot of the more kind of dogmatic statements I'm, I'm not a fan of. Down from there, we have reality therapy at 33%. And then the lowest by far is Jungian analytical, which is 10%. So that's interesting. Um, what do I think about this? So I'm, my top ones are cognitive behavioral, psychoanalysis, and narrative and gestalt. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it's one from each category. So they, you know, their their main categories are psychodynamic, cognitive behavioral, existential, humanistic, and postmodern. And so I I have a pretty high score in each one of those four categories, which makes sense to me. But I but I don't have high scores in all of the components of those categories, if that makes sense. Um the highest overall score in terms of the categories was my postmodern, I'm at 56%. Um yeah. You know, makes sense. And and the 
the gestalt, if you will, of this graph is that pretty much everything except for Jung, I can get behind and reality therapy. I, and I've often talked about that. I've always said, you know, reality therapy doesn't resonate with me and neither is Jung, but all the other ones do. Solution-focused, narrative, gestalt, person-centered, existential, behaviorism, REBT, cognitive, uh, Adler, psychoanalysis, all of these things resonate with me. And thus, I'm a, you know in the 50 to 70% range with all of these, you know, 40 to 70%. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I wonder what you would get if you took the test. Again, the link is, um, how do you know? I guess, let me see if I can just find it if I do a search, because I don't want to give the full URL, because that's annoying. So if I type in stories of the great, stories of the great therapists, and I do that in quotes, will I get the test? No. And then I do Old Dominion University. <laughs> Old Dominion University. Do I get it? Uh, let's see. Um, no, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, just find it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to put the link in the description, but uh, I'm not usually very good with that kind of stuff. Or I don't know, maybe email me or always use the website to contact me if you can. Anyway. All right. I think that took a long time. So let us adjourn and I will talk to you later. <laughs> let me know what you think. Take the test and... Um, Okay, fine. I will put the link. Actually, know what? I will post the link on Facebook right now. And I will say, I'm going to be talking about this in a month. So, because this episode will air a lot later than I actually recording right now. So, take the test and then you'll be able to. So, I'll, so it will have already been posted on Facebook. So, go to the Facebook page and scroll down. You'll eventually find it. Okay. Let me know what you got. And let me know what you think of this test. These tests are kind of weird. You know, did, it, did you have an expected results what happened let me know go to the contact us page on the website contact me through that um, that's the only way i really like you to contact me all right please take care of yourself because you deserve it you really 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 do mm-hmm.